And uh, wow, what an amazing passage. What an incredible piece of scripture. I'm so excited to be able to look at it with you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and really, really glad that you have uh, tuned in, that you're joining in with us. Uh, We're in part two of this series we've been doing called uh, Big Problems, Bigger God. Big Problems, Bigger God. The question to kind of set this up today is what are you paying attention to? What are you paying attention to you? You know, believe it or not, this is actually an economic question. What are you paying attention to? It's an economic question in addition to other kinds of questions. And what we mean by that is this, that economics technically is the study of how scarce resources are allocated. The study of how scarce resources are allocated. So when you think about economics and kind of the history of economics, for many, many, many years and centuries, we had a material-based economy where uh, materials were scarce. And so economics was kind of figuring out how to have an economy based on those scarce materials. Uh, Then at some point, we moved into an information economy, right? Those who knew more, those who had more education, those who had more information, those were the folks who really could do well in an information-based economy. Well, now there's no scarcity of information. What there is, is scarcity of attention. And so we've moved from material-based economy to an information economy to now what people would call an attention economy. This is why uh, the people who are in charge of media and digital communication are doing everything they can to get your eyeballs, to get your clicks, because this world runs on our attention. What are you paying attention to? What are you looking at? What are you beholding? Now, the attention economy is new, but the power of attention is not new. And so the prophet Isaiah, who is writing to people who don't live in an attention economy, but to people who have their attention on the wrong thing. In Isaiah chapter 40, he's writing to people who have their attention on the exile that they're in. They're uh, going to be, he's predicting uh, hundreds of years from, from then, and he's, he's writing to them as if he's in that moment now, that, that these folks are going to be in exile. They've been hauled off to Babylon. They've been uh, uprooted out of their homes, sent to an idolatrous foreign land. And he's saying, I want you to fix your eyes, fix your attention on something bigger. This is part of his message of comfort. If you look back in your Bible at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, it begins saying, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This was a group of people who were overwhelmed by a constant stream of bad news. Does that sound familiar? And his answer, as he seeks to give comfort to people overwhelmed with bad news, his answer is this, and here's the big idea today, behold your God. Pay attention to God. Behold your God. Look at verse 9. He says, go up on to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That's the big idea today. What are you paying attention to? I want to encourage you that in these moments when it feels like it's a constant stream of bad news, don't look around. Because if you look around, it's just going to be more bad news. I remember that moment. Maybe you had this moment a number of months ago. That, That first moment when I went to the grocery store and the shelves were like empty 
right? It looked like we were in some kind of apocalypse movie. And it was like, oh my gosh, there's no meat and there's no eggs and there's no toilet paper. And this thing looks like it's just been picked over. And I remember that was the moment where I went, oh my goodness, this thing's like no joke. Like, like we're in a world of hurt here. And that happens when you look around. When you just look around, you go, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. So listen, don't look around. And, and also don't look within, because listen, if you had the strength to be able to look within yourself and pull yourself out of the problems you're in, you wouldn't feel so fragile. You wouldn't feel so discouraged. So don't look around and don't look within. Isaiah says, look up, look up. Behold your God. I shared this verse last week. It's a verse I've been praying for myself and for us as a church family. It's Psalm 112, verse 7, talking about a righteous man. And it says, he is not afraid of bad news. Why? His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. The person who's not afraid of bad news is not afraid of bad news because they've looked around and seen no more bad news. Of course not. It's not because they've just looked within and found, oh, I'm stoic and superior and I don't need to feel like that. No, this is a person whose heart is firm because he's trusting in the Lord, because his attention is on the Lord, because he's beholding his God. So that's what we're going to do today in this just rich passage of Scripture. Uh, Make sure you have a Bible in front of you because we're going to kind of look at a bunch of different words and we're just going to try to kind of lift our eyes onto God, to see him in all of his glory and all of his goodness. So let's pray and then let's dive in and, and see what we see. Let's pray. Father, God, we want a vision of you that sustains us and that strengthens us. And that gives us hope and courage and endurance. God, when it often feels like we just don't have that in ourselves. And so God, we ask right now for you to do what only you can do, which is to take your word and by your spirit to make it alive and real in our hearts. God, we believe this is true, but God, we need an experience of it. And so would you give that to us now, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, behold your God. That's the big idea. When we behold our God, what do we see? What do we see from Isaiah chapter 40 when we behold our God? Well, the first thing we see is that God is tough and tender. God is tough and tender. He's both of these things. Uh, Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. Did you notice in those verses the two different ways that God's arm is described? In verse 9, it says his arm rules for him. It's this, it's this picture of toughness. It's this picture of strength. It's this picture of power. His arm rules. But then in verse 11, it says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. It's a picture of tenderness. It's a picture of goodness. It's a picture of provision. See, God is the one who's tough and tender, who's powerful and providing, who's great and good, who has a steel spine and a soft heart. Oh, how rare it is to have both of those qualities, isn't it? I mean, we all know people who are really tough, but they're not tender. We know a lot of people who are really tender, but they're not very tough. God is both. 
right? We're, we're more like the dog who has one tennis ball in its mouth and isn't happy with that and wants to try to pick up another tennis ball in its mouth. And as soon as he gets the, the other one, the first one falls out, right? That's kind of what we do. We just ping pong back and forth. Uh, I'm tough one minute. No, I'm tender now. No, I'm tough. No, I'm tender. No, I'm powerful. No, I'm, 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 I'm kind. God doesn't ping pong back and forth. He is both of those things. Listen, we're going to see in this text that God is supreme, that he is unrivaled, that he is powerful over all things. But don't miss in the midst of that what it says in verse 11, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He's supreme, but he's supremely good. God is tough and tender. Behold your God. Well, the next thing that we see is that God is supreme over all of creation. The next verses, verses 12 to 17, really show us how God is supreme over all creation. He's larger than, he's bigger than, he's mightier than all creation. Look at the immensity of God in verse 12. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Do you notice the words here that are describing a kind of precision work, fine-tuning, measured, marked off, enclosed, weighed? These are words that are describing God almost as a, as a kind of, uh, as a craftsman, as a carpenter who's, who's fine-tuning this massive universe, <laughs> And notice the kind of way that this massive universe is kind of just small scale when it comes to God. Look at what it says. It says he measures the water in the hollow of his hand. You know what the hollow of your hand is? Just kind of wherever you are. Uh, If you're uh, out in public watching on your phone especially, this will be really fun. People will be like, what's wrong with you, man? Here's what I want you to do. Just, Just kind of cup your hand like this. This little tiny little spot right in the middle of your hand, that's the hollow of your hand. And it's saying that God measures the waters, the whole waters of the whole earth in the hollow of his hand. Now, we're not to take this literally as though God has physical hands and sometimes just for fun, he holds all the water in it. This is a way of speaking about the immensity of God, the supremacy of God over creation. Similarly, it says he marked off the heavens with a span. A span would be the, the distance from your, from your pinky to your thumb. That's a span, And this is God, this word is saying about God, he's so supreme over creation that when we look at all of the the created universe, God goes, yeah, it's about, it's about that, it's about that long. He measures it that way. The dust of the earth in a measure, the mountains in scales, the hill in a balance. This is all describing the immensity, the bigness of God. But God is not just big in terms of his power over creation. He's also all wise. Look at the wisdom language that then is used in verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. You see these words? Counsel, consult, understand, taught, knowledge, understanding. These are all words about wisdom. So God is not just powerful and immense, he's also wise. (laughs) One of the big differences between you and God, between me and God, you know what one of the big differences is? God never ever needs Google, right? God, God, God never says, hey Alexa, 
And uh, for those of you with Amazon in your house, sorry about what just happened. Hey, Alexa, right? He never says, uh, hey, Siri. He never says, you know what? That's a great question. I don't know. Let me, let me look that up on Google. God knows everything. And he doesn't just have all the information. He has wisdom. He has understanding. No one needs to give God advice. God, God never phones a friend and goes, man, I'm stuck. What do I do? He's wise. He has understanding. He has knowledge. While God fine-tunes the universe he created, nobody fine-tunes God. Notice also his supremacy over creation in his being independent. Look at what it says in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. There is accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. See, the nations, the peoples of the world are dependent on God. They depend on him for life and breath and everything, but God doesn't depend on them, right? Compared to God, we are, look at the language, a drop, dust, fine dust, nothing, less than nothing, emptiness. Now get this, this is not saying that humanity is worthless. This is not saying that you and I are, are nothing. It's, it's saying in comparison to the majesty and the supremacy of God, if you were to compare us, yes, we're made in his image, but compared to how great he is, we're like dust. God is independent of us. We depend on him, not the other way around. And then finally in this section, look at God's supremacy over creation in his, uh, and I'm going to make this word up, his unpaybackableness. (laughs) He's unpaybackable. Look what it says in, in verse 16. It says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. So in other words, God is so supreme, God is so great, God is so wise, God is so independent that if you had all of the forests of Lebanon and you had all the animals of Lebanon to sacrifice to this God, it wouldn't be enough. I love what Alec Mateer, the great uh, Isaiah commentator says, he says, over every human effort to move God, to meet his demands, to satisfy his requirements, to maneuver him to our advantage and climb into his good books, Isaiah simply writes, not enough. (laughs) Not enough. God is unpaybackable. He's so big. He's so great. You couldn't begin to do anything with your good works, with your effort, with your kindness, with anything. You couldn't do anything at all that would pay God back. He's supreme over creation. Behold your God. But God is not just supreme over creation. He's also supreme over rivals. See, God does have some things that humanity has lifted up to try to rival God. I think we should get by this point that you can't really rival God, but we sure try. And the first thing we see that we rival is in verses 18 through 20 is an idol, false gods. It says in verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He's too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Notice at the beginning of verse 19, it says a craftsman. At the end of verse 20, it again says a craftsman. 
And it's describing these idols, these false gods that are made by craftsmen. They're made up powers. They're fragile things. Right? Do you see what he says? He's trying to find verse 20, wood that will not rot, an idol that won't fall over. These are fragile, weak, man-made things. And yet the, the tendency of the people of Israel and the tendency of you and me is to make up some stuff about God, to make a God, right? Somebody said that God made man in his own image and, and man has been returning the favor ever since. And so we set up these idols, these false non-gods, these made-up powers that we look to, that we trust in. Now, we probably aren't uh, going down to Home Depot to try to recruit somebody to make a, a statue for us. We're not doing that. And yet, as John Calvin says, the human heart is a factory of idols. We look to other things, don't we? Don't you? Don't you look to other things to find your meaning, to find your identity, to, to find your hope? Right? An idol is something that says, life only has meaning if I have this. Anything that you would finish that sentence with, life only has meaning if that's an idol. Let me give you a list of idols. If you say life only has meaning, if I'm able to master my life in this area, then your idols control. You're trying to have self-mastery. If you would say, well, life only has meaning if people need me, your idol is helping some of you, you actually think of yourself as a very loving person because you're always there to help people. And that's great, except you might also be an idolatrous person. If you need to be needed, if you need other people to be hurting so that you can have identity and worth as you help them, that's actually an idol. Maybe you say, well, uh, life only has meaning for me if I'm free from obligations or responsibility. I, I'm, I'm independent, right? That's your idol, is independence. I don't want to be burdened. I don't want to be tied down. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Don't tread on me. I'm free from obligations. I'm free from responsibilities. Might be an idol of independence. If you say, well, life only has meaning if I'm highly productive, then your idol is work. If you say life only has meaning if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments, then your idol is achievement. I need to be seen. I need to be noticed. I need to be winning. If you say I have a particular kind of look or body image, and that's how I know life has meaning, is if I look a certain way, well, then, then your, your image is your idol. If you say life only has meaning, if I have a certain level of financial freedom and nice possessions, then maybe your idol is wealth. Maybe you idolize an individual person. You say, you know what, life only has meaning if this one person is in my life and they're happy with me. Some of you are, are overwhelmed and you're burdened because the person that you're living for isn't happy with you. God would say, live for me. I'll be happy with you. I'll forgive you. I'll welcome you in. But you've said, no, I don't want that. I want to live for this person and I want to get their approval. That might be your next idol is life only has meaning if a particular group of people lets me in. Then approval is your idol. You're always seeking to be noticed and seen and welcomed in. Maybe it's family. We say life only has worth is worth living if my children or my parents are happy with me. Maybe it's romance. Maybe you'd say life only is worth living if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Maybe you'd say life's only worth living, life only has meaning if my culture is prospering and recognized as superior. That's a cultural or a racial kind of idol. And maybe it's ideology. You say life only has meaning if my political or my social cause is progressing and growing in power. See, the human heart 
is a factory of idols. And God is supreme over these idols. That's the whole point of this. Verse 18, to whom will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? Will you compare this God who measures the universe with the span of his hand? Will you compare that God to your need for approval? To your your need for a certain body image? It, it, It will fail you. Chris Wright says, false gods never fail to fail. God is supreme over the rival of false gods, but God is also supreme, as we see in the next section, over the rival of human rulers. See, some people look for deliverance to idols. Other people look to human, especially political kind of rulers. Look at what it says in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Here's the key verse, verse 23. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. See, God is supreme over human rulers. He's supreme over princes and rulers of the earth. He brings them to emptiness. Do you know who is absolutely not fretting? about the 2020 election. God. He's not fretting about it. He cares, but he's not worried. Why? Because when you look at the princes and the rulers of our country, when you look at Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and AOC and Tom Cotton, When you look at the rulers of the world, Angela Merkel, Justin Trudeau, Boris Johnson, Kim Jong-un, Ayatollah Khomeini, President Xi of China, Vladimir Putin. Take all of those people, and what does it say in verse 24? God goes, and they wither. They fall apart. They're like little grasshoppers. God is not worried about them because God is supreme over them. The Proverbs say the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it wherever he will. God is supreme. God is sovereign. God is ruling over his rivals. Behold your God. As we conclude beholding God, let's notice this from the end of this section, verses 25 and 26, that God is incomparable. Aren't you getting this point by now? You're kind of going, man, I I feel like you're just hitting the same nail over and over and over. That's because it's what it's saying in Isaiah 40. He's saying, hey, you have problems? You have troubles? You have concerns? I want to give you comfort. Here's your comfort. Behold your big God. And he says, God is incomparable. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. 
this little part is saying, who are you going to compare with me? Don't you see who I am? Don't you see how big I am? Don't you see my ruling arm? Don't you see my gathering arm? Don't you see my power and my goodness? Who are you going to compare to me? And then verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created this. He's, he's basically saying, hey, hey, here's what I want you to do. Uh, Isaiah, th- tell him to come outside at night and look up at the stars. That, that's what he's talking about, the host. He who brings out their host by number, the starry host, the, the, the stars of the universe. He, he's saying, God calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he's strong in power, not one is missing. You ever looked at the stars? You ever been camping and gotten away from town and it's dark and you're looking up and you see the stars and, and they're bright and it just feels like there's so many of them? God made that. One of the stars that God made, you may have heard of, the sun, right? The earth, our earth revolves around the sun. And do you know how powerful the sun is? How much money do you think it would cost to power the sun? Right, if we were going to kind of use human energy systems to, to, to power the sun, how much would it cost? Well, here's how much it would cost. The gross national product of the United States in 2019 was $20 trillion. $20 trillion. So if you had the gross national product of the United States, $20 trillion, if you had that for 5 million years, that's how much it would cost to power the sun for one second. For one second. And what's amazing is that that the sun is kind of a relatively small star in this Milky Way galaxy. It's it's relatively little. This Milky Way galaxy that we're part of is enormous, right? It's so big, think about this for just a moment, that if the Milky Way, that's the galaxy that our solar system is part of, if the Milky Way were the size of North America, you can kind of picture North America in your head, If the Milky Way were the size of North America, our solar system would be the size of a quarter. Of a quarter. That's how big the Milky Way galaxy is. If you were to count the billions of stars in the Milky Way at one star per second, it would take 2,500 years to count them. And if that doesn't blow your mind yet, get this, the Milky Way is one of an estimated two trillion galaxies. So here's what that means. If you were traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, traveling at the speed of light, you would uh, go around the earth seven times in one second. You would pass the moon in two seconds. And at this speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach the next closest star It would take you 100,000 years to cross our galaxy, that's the Milky Way, and it would take 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy, and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies, and you've only just begun to explore the universe. Now, let me ask you this question. The God who made all that, and the God who knows it all by name, is this the kind of person that you ask to be your co-pilot? your sometimes assistant? No. This is a God who's incomparable. This is a God who's mighty. This is a God who's supreme. And yet here's what's amazing. This is also the God who took on flesh as a helpless 
baby who lived on that little tiny planet in that Milky Way galaxy, just one of all of these other galaxies, and he lived on that planet a life of suffering, a life of weakness, a life of betrayal, a life of loss, a, loss of, a life of poverty, ultimately on the cross, a life of humility or humiliation and shame. Right? This is the God who's so big that he knows all the stars by number and yet he humbled himself and, and became obedient to the point of death on the cross for our sins, for our idolatry, for our tendency to look to created things instead of to him. This is a God who did this. Why did he do this? So that you could behold him, so that you could see him with eyes of faith in your heart and behold him not just as big and not just as powerful and not just as holy because that's just a threat. But this God came and he humbled himself so that you could behold God close so that you wouldn't just experience the ruling arm of God but that you would experience the gathering arm of God. That's what Jesus came to do. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, who gathers them in his arms, comforts them when they're confused and weary and troubled. And if the Lord were here right now, I think he'd say what he says in his word. He'd say, hey, behold your God. Yeah, you have big problems. Yeah, you have real pain. Behold your God. Yes, you're uncertain. Yes, you're confused. Behold your God. That's why the Lord came to gather us and to strengthen us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a, what a gift that your word is to help us to behold you, to help us to see you. And God, I, I pray that we would not just be seeing you in some kind of scholastic way or wow, that was interesting kind of a way, but that our hearts would be moved to awe and to wonder and to dependence and to faith. God, we're little. We're these drops, these fine dust. We're, we're like grasshoppers. We're just nothing compared to you. And yet you gather us in your arms and you came for us in Christ. And so we pray, God, with the eyes of faith, wanting to behold you and to trust you. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.